you got your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm 110. We're going to take a look at Psalm 110. I don't know that we'll get too much beyond Psalm 110. Psalm 110 uh, is a psalm of David. Um, it is the psalm from which the New Testament quotes more than any other psalm in the Bible. Uh, becomes a pretty important psalm, and pretty important for us also <clears throat> to see and know uh, the author of the psalm and the purpose of the psalm, which is a big part of uh, really coming away from Psalm 110 with an understanding. So, as we consider it, you know, I always like to let the Bible tell us what's going on, right? So it begins, Psalm 110, right at the, right at the, at the very top, it says, a Psalm of David. <laughs> so, not everybody, not for everyone, is that is, is that good enough all the time, the, the note that says it's a Psalm of David. So I... Go to Mark chapter 12, and it says, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110. So Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, and in Matthew, I want to say it's Matthew chapter 22, Jesus quotes uh, from Psalm 110 and says, the psalm was written by David and that it's about the Messiah. So we just want to see when the scripture lays out for us, when it tells us what's going on, right? Scripture just tells us straight out. Here's what's happening. David wrote it. Jesus said David's writing about the Messiah. Uh, so when we look at it, that's what we want to we want to see. And that's why this particular psalm, is uh, quoted so often in the, in the New Testament because it's describing for us uh, what God has done in anointing uh, Jesus as Christ, what the Messiah is going to do when he sets up his rule and reign. Uh, we're going to see all of those things as we take a look at what we have for us. So <clears throat> Psalm 110 becomes the basis of the apostles' teachings about the exaltation of Christ. Uh, becomes the basis of the apostles' teaching for the royal priesthood. Uh, the concept for prophet, priest, and king are going to come from Psalm 110 as we look at it. So it's an important psalm, written, penned, you know, 800 years, a little better than 800 years before um, the birth of Christ, the coming of Messiah, and uh, lays out for us so much that we can come to know, realize, and understand. So when we look at it, David is writing this psalm to the Messiah as an enthronement uh, psalm, an oracle of enthronement. It was like a, the song you would sing when the king's enthroned. There was one sung for David, there was one sung for Solomon. Well, this is the one sung for Messiah. This is the one sung for Jesus. David writes it out, pens it out, 800 years before he comes. So we have this concept. David uh, calling the Messiah, one that would be his son, Lord. And uh, some vital things that we want to grab from that as we move forward. So let's look at it. It begins with this phrase. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D. We talked about that a number of times, right? So that's Yahweh. Proper name of God. Capital L-O-R-D, Y-H-V-H. The Lord said... And then David, as king, says, my Lord. Now, who was David's Lord? Well, we know who Yahweh is. Yahweh is God. 
David's Lord, my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus Christ. So he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, the word is Adonai. So he says, says to, to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is a, a section of scripture that, again, we're going to see multiple verses here quoted in the New Testament laid out for us, um, referencing the Christ and who Jesus is. So let's think about what is it, because it, again, the New Testament really shines light on what he's saying here. So let's think about it. We're saying, David is saying, Messiah is greater than me. He's not just like my son. If it was his son, then he would say, the Lord Yahweh says to my son. But he says, the Lord says to my Lord. That's why Jesus brings it up in Mark chapter 12. He asks the scribes and the Pharisees, why does David call his son Lord? Because David is writing under the guise of the Holy Spirit, right? Isn't that, isn't that what he said? David wrote, under the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus asked them, why does he say it like that? Well, he says it like that because he's describing the Christ. He's describing uh, Jesus and he's laying it out for him. So for David is saying, as king, Messiah is above me. Messiah is above me. And when we look at this idea, sit here at my right hand, sit at my right hand, there's a lot that we want to really squeeze out of that to, to comprehend it. So, number one, he's saying, Messiah is greater than David. When we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 34, it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. So when, when he's describing, when Peter is preaching the message in Acts chapter 2, he says, look, when we read, and he quotes from Psalm 110, he says, but it's not David who ascended. Who ascended? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So he's saying, Messiah is greater than David. He also tells us in um, Hebrews 1.13 that Messiah is greater than the angels. He's exalted above the angels. The Lord said to my Lord, how high up does this concept of Adonai, under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how high does that elevate Messiah? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it's above the angels. Because it says in Hebrews 1.13, to which angel has God ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? So what is the writer of Hebrews telling us? He's not an angel. He's greater than, above, beyond the angels. So, the Lord said to my Lord, is greater than David. And according to the writer of Hebrews, using the same scripture from Psalm 110, he's greater than the angels. So we're talking about the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ, describing for us, laying out for us who he is. We see that God has exalted him as emphatically as man rejected him. As emphatically as man said, we will not have this one to rule over us, God has exalted him. God has lifted him up. According to Acts 5.30, when we have this, this message, the next message preached, um, as Peter's laying it out, he says, Jesus whom you killed, God exalted and has set at his right hand. So the concept, okay, work your way through. 
greater than David, greater than the angels. He himself, Jesus the Christ, exalted (coughs) by God the Father. Even though man rejected him, God has exalted him. God has lifted him up. He also, the scriptures go on in the New Testament using Psalm 110 to describe to us that, that the Christ as Savior and intercessor reigns. The Messiah reigns as, as King. In fact, in Romans 8, 34, Christ, it says, who is at the right hand of God, intercedes for us. What's he referring to? He's referring to Psalm 110. It said what? Come, sit here in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is it that he's accomplished? What is it that Christ, who's exalted above David, above the angels, above man who has rejected him, what is it that David is is saying Messiah is doing at the right hand of God? Which, by the way, is an exalted position of deity. Which of us is going to sit on on the Lord, on, on God's lap at His right hand. The Bible says there will be thrones in heaven, but it's not God's throne. So He's seated right on God's throne, seated beside Him, and then what's the Scripture say? He's interceding for us. So what's that mean? Yeah, He's... So, so one of the concepts that we want to see in the work of Christ is that He's <coughs> got His hand in God's hand, that's pretty close, right? Because he's sat right to the right. Seated beside him on the right-hand side. So he can put his hand in God's hand. But because he's the God-man, where can he put his other hand? In the hand of man. So he stands in the gap. He intercedes between man and God. He became the substitute, sin sacrifice, so that that bridge could be gapped. So what is it that Christ is doing? He's praying for his children. Now, when does he sleep? What's the Bible tell us about heaven? Is there a night there? So there's no night there. There's only day. There's no need for rest. So when does Jesus take a day off? Okay, so when we talk about the exaltation, the writer of Hebrews, we'll see in a little while, is going to exalt him above the high priest. And he's going to say the reason is because Jesus is a better high priest than any high priest we could ever have. Why? Because he never takes a day off. He never dies. He's never asleep or not listening or not available. He ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. Ever lives. He's always available. So when we look at it, He is ruling and reigning on the right hand of the Lord as Savior and intercessor. We also see the concept of sit here. What does it mean to sit? Well, what we see in Hebrews, when we look in Hebrews in a little while, it means that the work is done. Because every priest served how? Standing. Continually, right? Continually doing a sacrifice, taking the blood, sprinkling the blood, going into the Holy of Holies, praying, doing all the things that the priest had to do. But what has Christ done? He sat. Where did he sit? According to the writer of Hebrews, we're going to see it in a moment when we look. He sits at the right hand of God. Why? Because the work is finished. Right? What did Jesus say from the cross? It is almost done? Right. He said it is finished. It is completed. So, 
Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then, he's seated there for a purpose. What's he waiting for? He's waiting until the last surrender. Until the last surrender. He's seated until what? Until your enemies should be made a footstool. The idea in the Old Testament, we see the picture in the Old Testament. What happened when a king defeated his enemy? The Bible tells they would put their foot on their neck. They'd put their foot on their neck and say, you've been defeated. Well, how, how does the Bible describe that? Your enemy has been made your footstool. The last. Now the Bible is pretty clear on how these things are going to occur, right? We've been talking about even when we looked at Daniel. When we talk about the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, as that, uh, that mighty rock, the Bible tells us either we fall on Him and we're broken, or what happens? He falls on us and we're crushed. Okay, what, what's he saying? Well, there's two categories we're going to see as we continue in this psalm. There are those who bow the knee voluntarily, or those who choose to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? You with me? And there are those who don't, but the, all people will do the same thing. What's it say in Philippians chapter 2? He's been exalted, lifted above every name that is named, that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will what? Bow. What are we talking about? Your enemies will be made your footstool. Every knee will bow. Everyone will submit to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The, that's what the Bible declares. Where does that concept come from? It comes from Psalm 110. What is it that God is saying? The Lord Yahweh has said to the Messiah, sit here at my right hand. Who's going to make his enemies a footstool? God's going to do it, right? That's a work of God. God is accomplishing. I don't know, you and I, we look at the world and the world keeps getting darker, yeah? And if we're honest, it makes us want to quit. But God didn't give us that option, did he? He didn't say, you know, if the world keeps getting darker and you feel like quitting, just go ahead. No, that's not, that's not what he said, Right? He said, lift up your head, what? Your redemption draws nigh. Your redemption is near. So since, since you're getting closer and closer, the darker it gets to the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God, of the ultimate redemption, all the more we should be encouraged to stay in the battle, right? I don't want to be the soldier who gave up just a little bit too soon and then right then the reinforcements show up right and they find me laying down through my my sword away i drop my shield i'm taking off my armor i'm i'm having my i quit deal of surrender got a white flag and right then the the guys pull up is that how you want to be that's not how i want to be are you kidding i want to be just Look like I just had as much energy as I possibly could have in the middle of the fight when he shows up. And he finds, what? His servant being who he's called him to be. And so that's what the scripture's laying out. Look, who's doing the work? God is. We just got to remain faithful, right? We stay faithful. The Bible says, occupy till I come. We still, there's a purpose, right? Make disciples. There's a purpose, right? Sharing the gospel. Now, if we're not doing that at all, then... We probably ought to get about it. We ought to get about it. <clears throat> because the day will come when every single knee is going to bow. 
It says in verse 2, And the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Yahweh shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. So the, this next promise, not only is it that, that the Lord is saying to the Messiah, Come sit here until I make your enemies. But now he's also saying, I'm going to provide you a great army. There'll be a great army who are going to be able to go with you. A great army who will be able to gather into the battle. They're going to come out of Zion. Zion's just another name for Jerusalem. When we look at Psalm 110, there's a lot of eschatological um, implications when we look at it. What do I mean? The end times. What do we talk about when we talk about end times? We talk about a battle at the end of time, right? Most people know the name. It's the Valley of Megiddo, right? Or it's called Har. Megiddo, Armageddon. So the idea is there's, there's this battle. So what is it? God says, Yahweh says, I'm going to provide you the army. I'm going to provide you the army. How does Revelation describe it in Revelation chapter 19? The Lord will return with ten thousands of his saints. The Greek word ten thousands is like ten thousand times ten thousand. It's meant to be an innumerable host. So when Jesus returns with strength out of Zion <coughs> for that final battle, where does it come from? Yahweh. comes from God. It's, it's, this is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is the things that God is laying out. So the Lord shall send the rod, that, that idea, the scepter, the rule being established by Yahweh. But then look at verse 3. And your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power so it's almost like you say look there's going to be the rod of your strength so there's going to be an army coming through and what's going to happen the army is going to force those to bow every every knee is going to do what so they're all going to bow right so you see the army there's on one hand the forced obedience look you're going to do it and on the other hand voluntary only one of those leads to salvation right so we have we have the, the volunteer. We have the, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness. <coughs> From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Now, a couple of interesting things. One of, we, one of the things we want to see is that the people of God, or the people who are submitted to Christ, or the followers of the Lord, <coughs> willingly submit. Right? What, what's a better word for Volunteer. That's willingly, right? I just am volunteering. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm willing. So it carries two concepts. One, a willing submission. And two, a willing service. Think about what it says in the New Testament when it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable sacrifice, reasonable service. The idea is what? A willful, a, cho- a choice of submission and a choice of serve. So your volunteers are going to be there. So he says, look, you've got to have an army to go out with the rod of iron, right? He's going to rule with the rod of iron when he sets up his kingdom. And you're going to have those volunteers, those who willingly have bowed the knee. In the beauty of holiness. One of the things <coughs> that we love... Um, expressed about jesus christ is that idea of the beauty 
of His holiness. But this says, in the beauties. In the beauties of holiness. The concept is that there is a uh, more than... It's, it's a diversified holiness. Does that make sense? We like to make holiness uh, something you can cut out of a paper doll. Right? Here's the rules for holiness. Don't smoke, don't drink. You know, here, here, the list of don'ts, don't do any of these things. If you don't do those, you're holy. But that's not what the Bible says. What's the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that we're made holy because of who? Jesus Christ. We're made holy not because I'm holy. I'm made holy because I bowed the knee, right? I made, I'm made holy because I submitted to Christ. That I, I receive Him as my Lord and Savior. What happens? He, who is holy, makes me holy. Not that I somehow became, uh, um, or somehow I do something to become holy. It's His holiness. You know what it says? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice that I might become righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. It's an imputed righteousness, right? It's an imputed righteousness that He gives, He pours into my life simply on the, on the, uh, uh, idea that I am there, you know, uh, um, I am there in submission before him. And, and just like Abraham in, uh, in Genesis, uh, what, ch- chapter 15? Abraham believed God and what happened? It was accounted to him for righteousness. So you have the beauties of holiness. I think in a lot of ways when we look at this volunteer army, those who have bowed the knee before Christ, one of the things that we're going to see is incredible trophies of the grace of God. And not every, everybody don't all look the same. I'm not saying they're wrought in, in sin and all that. Nope, I'm just saying they're, they're different types of trophies for the grace of God. For the beauties of holiness. The, the touch of God in the lives of His people. And then he says, you have the dew of your youth. Now here, he's, he's describing Almighty God what he, and, and, and what God is giving or gifting to Messiah who was seated at the right hand, now his enemies are his footstool, he's given them the rod, the scepter to rule, uh, the volunteers, those who are there to serve, and, and praise his name, and then he don't ever get old. That's what that means. You have the dew of your youth. That's going to come up again in a couple of verses. You have the dew of your youth. Yeah, there's... I, I'm kind of looking forward to the concept of not getting old, by the way. Currently, I don't get to enjoy that. But one day, with Christ, yeah, you have the dew of your youth. There's not the breakdown that we see today. Paul would write it like this. For now, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to light the saying, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because the victory is wrought through who? Jesus Christ. Who is what? Messiah. Who is exalted above every name that's named. Who is exalted above David. Exalted above the angels. Who is lifted high. To whom God will give the rod of his scepter. To whom there will be those who bow the knee. Every knee. But there will be those who have voluntarily bowed the knee. Right? That are going to come before him. But then look at the next thing that the scripture lays out for us in verse 4. The Lord, again, we're talking about Yahweh, right? Capital L-O-R-D. 
<coughs> Yahweh has sworn and will not relent. So if the Bible says that, is it going to change? Okay, so that means this is settled. So Yahweh has, has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever. How long's forever? That's a long time, right? Does forever end? No, so he's a priest forever. So he is a priest eternally. And this priesthood, this particular priesthood, is exalted above even the priesthood of Levi. The Levitical priesthood that we read about in the Old Testament. We're going to see why in just a moment. You are a priest forever. And then he says why? According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know anything about Melchizedek, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But there are... Four places Melchizedek's talked about in the Bible. Genesis chapter 14, first place he's mentioned. That's a story that takes place with Abraham and he meets Melchizedek. Then he's spoken of in Psalm 110. All of a sudden in Psalm 110 it says Messiah is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then we look into Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews uh, uh, 6 and 7 that lay out for us what that all means. So we, again, have this idea spoken of by David 800 years before Messiah is going to come. It lays out that Messiah is going to be a high priest, the the ultimate work that Messiah is going to accomplish when he comes. And if we really want to be able to kind of grapple with the idea, what's that mean? What's that mean for me? Then we ought to go there. So flip over in your Bibles, Hebrews. We'll pick it up first. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 5. So we'll read Hebrews 5, 5 through 10, so that we can begin to kind of grapple with the idea. What is it that Yahweh is saying? He is exalted. He's above every name. He's got the rule, the rod to rule with, a scepter to rule. And he's a high priest. You have the idea laid out for us for prophet, priest, and king. So we pick it up in Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also, Christ, Messiah, that's what Christ means, did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, that first he refers to God, it was he, God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this was a statement, uh, again, of enthronement. You remember the enthronement psalms? I said there was a song saying for David. There was a song saying for Solomon. This is a song saying for Messiah. So God is saying, God the Father is saying to God the Son, Today you are my Son. You are my King. You are the one I'm enthroning. Today you are my Son. Uh, Today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we just read that, right? So, two things. You are being enthroned as king. You are my son. In fact, that's why Jesus is going to be called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Right? Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And you are the priest. He is king. He is priest. Um, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So let's talk about what that means. Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication and vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, 
and was heard because of his godly fear. So we're talking about Jesus as Christ in his flesh. When did all this occur? When did he cry out to God vehemently with tears? Garden of Gethsemane, right? Got Shimone, Jesus in that place. He's calling out to the Lord. It says in verse 8, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now a lot of people struggle with this. Let's not struggle with it. What's it saying? Well, there was never anything, any person for God to be obedient to in all of eternity. Until the Son came in the incarnation. till God put on flesh. So he learned obedience. He experienced what it is to be obedient. What was he being obedient to? To death, right? Even to the, to the death of the cross. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Who did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation. Came in the likeness of man, taken on the form of a bondservant. And became obedient even unto the death, the death of the cross. And so by such, his name is exalted above every name. Right? We, we discussed that concept. So what do we say? He learned obedience. He experienced it. He got to walk it out in the flesh. In the flesh. So the, the human, the humanity of Christ got to experience the concept of obedience, the scripture says, here <clears throat> by the things he suffered. And what did he accomplish in that? Having been perfected, completed. Remember what did he say from the cross? It is almost finished? It's all the way finished. So, so it's perfected. It's completed. So what did he complete? Having been perfected, he became the author. That word for author means the originator. The originator, like the cause of. He became the author of, what's it say? Eternal salvation. And then it gives a descriptive term of those who are part of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Keep in mind the picture. Psalm 110, what was the picture of the volunteers? They volunteered, right? They're willingly submitted, willingly serving. So he said, he has become the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Who did that? Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came, who suffered, who is a priest and a king, right? We've seen that so far. He's the king, he's the priest, and so he has perfected all those who obey him, Called by God, every time Paul uses that phrase, by God, he's talking about the Father. When he talks about the Son, he's talking about the Son. Spirit, he's talking about the Spirit. That's how Paul delineates between those things. <coughs> so he says, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's that phrase again, right? We got this idea, he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But other than a long, crazy name... There's got to be something about that, right? What's, what's going on? In Genesis chapter 14, we read about the story. Abraham goes and delivers his nephew Lot. Remember Lot? Lot's been kidnapped. So the, the people of Sodom had been taken by the army of the five kings. And so they were taken away. They were going to be slaves. Abraham took 318 choice men and went after them. And he found the five the armies of the five kings in the plains. He does battle with them and he, he takes all that they had taken from Sodom and his nephew Lot and he rescues them all. And he turns around and he's heading back 
to take everything, take, take those folk back to Sodom, take Lot back to his home. And as he's on his way back, he runs into a guy on the side of the road named Melchizedek. And Abraham walks up to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek says he's a high priest of the Most High God. And everybody goes, where did he come from? And the, the short answer for that, theologically, the short answer is, nobody knows. That's going to be important in a moment, because Hebrews is going to continue to describe why that matters. So he's a, he's a, a high priest, Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. And Abraham gave unto Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now, what did that mean? All throughout Scripture, the lesser is going to bless the greater. So Abraham blesses Melchizedek. He pays a tithe. So all the sons of Abraham are not... Are, are not as exalted, if you will, as Melchizedek. That's a symbol. Because Abraham paid a tithe, then it means the Levites, the tribe of Levi that becomes a priesthood, they're not as exalted as Melchizedek, because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, we all may ask the question, why? And a lot of people say, because Melchizedek was Jesus, Standing on the side of the road. And he come up and he saw him. But I don't know whether or not that's true. I think if it was Jesus, he'd have said, I'm Jesus. But you know what Melchizedek means? Oh, king of righteousness. And he also says he's the king of Salem. You know what Salem means? Peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Well, while we're trying to wrap our minds around that idea, let's just go to the next section in... in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we'll pick it up at verse 19. <clears throat> the final section Melchizedek talked about. So it says in 6.19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. So this hope, entering the presence behind the veil. Behind the veil is the idea of being able to go to the Holy of Holies. To be able to stand before Almighty God. Okay? Where the forerunner has entered for us. Now, in case we're wondering who that is, he says, even Jesus. So Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies. He stands in the presence of God. He can stand in the presence of God. Why? Because the Bible tells us he's a God-man. He puts his hand in God's hand and his hand in man's hand. He bridges the gap. Look at it. The forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, According to the order of Melchizedek. How many times have we heard that now? Like three or four times, right? Three or four times. So he's high priest, and he's high priest according to that order. Why? Let's look at it. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, uh, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he is made like unto the Son of God, he remains a priest continually, forever. Now what's the description? The description doesn't mean 
that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 didn't have any of those things. It just says we don't know him. Is there a list of the genealogy from Melchizedek? Is there a list in Genesis 14 of his mom and dad? No. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, just like in Genesis 14, this guy just appears. He has no mother. He has no father, no beginning, no end. We don't know about when he died. We don't know about when he was born. He is an example. He's made like. That word like means that he is a, 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 a simile, a metaphor, a, a illustration of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus Christ have a mother and a father? Does Jesus Christ have a beginning or an end? The Bible tells us he's eternal. That he was a son from eternal, from eternity. Right? Genesis 1, or let's go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. So, the Word is eternal. Same as in the beginning God, from Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. That means literally face to face. That means the Word is distinct from God. It's not the... It's, it's the same being, but there's distinction. They can look at each other face to face. So he's with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? So we have the eternality of Jesus Christ. Described for us here, saying, that's what makes him a high priest. Now he's going disguise, he's gonna, he's gonna to discuss this idea with us <clears throat> as we look down in verse 4. Now consider how great... This man was, he's talking about Melchizedek now, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, the the priesthood that was at the time of Christ, and indeed those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them... Got a tithe from Abraham. What's he saying? Melchizedek is greater than Levi. It's a greater priesthood. How did the Levitical priesthood look? work? He's going to describe it. The Levitical priesthood worked like this. You were a priest until you died. And then there was a new priest. So there was continually a new priest because nobody lives forever, right? So Jesus is going to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? He don't ever die. No days off. No sleeping. No, I'm not making intercession. No, I'm not there for you. No, I can't hear you. No, I'm not there for you. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? Never means not ever, right? So this is the idea that he's laying out for him. So he's saying in verse 7, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi received tithes, paid them through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection would have been through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need is there of another priest? So there wouldn't be a need for another priest. But what happens? Perfection isn't there. Why? What is it that the priest has to do first before he will make an offering for your sin? You've got to make an offering for his own. Right? First he makes an offering for his sin. Then he can make an offering for your sin. That can never be perfected. 
Because he's continually got to make offering. Continually make an offering for his sin. Continually making an offering for your sin. What is it that the Lord is declaring for us here? It says in verse 12, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. We move from the law, the old covenant, to the new covenant. The old covenant established by the shedding of blood. The new covenant established by the shedding of blood. The old covenant established by the death of the Lamb. The new covenant established by the death of the Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The old covenant established by an animal. The new covenant established by the Son of God. By the blood of the Son of God. Eternal, one sacrifice, once for all. Isn't that what he's describing for us? For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has uh, officiated at the altar. It is evident our Lord came from Judah. So from the line of Judah he can't be priest. Verse 15, Yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but to the power of an endless life. Yeah, he's... One sacrifice, once for all time. It says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's number five. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness, right? There is continuous, continuous offerings. For the law has made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we can draw near to God. And as much as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath but he with an oath when he said the lord has sworn what's that the lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek by so much more jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why is it that God is saying you're a a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek? It's saying, look, you are the bringer, the establisher of a better covenant, a new covenant. The old covenant, continuous sacrifice. The new covenant, once. We bow the knee. We receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're clean. We're made whole. We're saved. One time. And He's always there. Always able. All these things Yahweh has accomplished. So then David goes on now in verse 5, back in Psalm 110. Now he's going to turn his attention to... He was speaking in the third person about Yahweh and what Yahweh's done for Christ. Now he's speaking in the the third person about Messiah. What's Messiah going to do? The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. What's he describing? Well, if you spend any time reading Revelation chapter 19, you've seen this before. When Jesus Christ comes to establish his earthly kingdom, how does he come? 
The Bible, everybody, everybody agrees. I don't care what they are, uh, pre, post, uh, um, millennial, at Revelation chapter 19, the king comes here. His feet touch the ground. He sets up the everlasting kingdom. His enemies, his last enemies are defeated. There's a judgment of the nations. We read about it in Matthew chapter 25. Remember the judgment of the sheep and the goats? You remember he divides the sheep from the goats? How does he do it? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you in prison and we visited you? And he said, when you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. It's called the the judgment of the sheep and the goats. He says he will judge between the nations. He's gonna, that's how he's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to rule with an with a iron rod. Period. There's no, there will be justice in that day. Revelation chapter 19 lays it all out for us. He will come and establish. Revelation 19 is too late to get right. Revelation 19, it's... It, God's come to make it right. So our time to get ready for that was chapter 1 of Revelation to 18. So to where wherein we find ourselves, I believe, in chapters 2 and 3, the time of the church, Revelation 2 and 3, dealing with the seven letters to seven churches, giving us an opportunity to spread the word that God has given us to spread, to make disciples, to do those things. That's where we're at right now. That's a a little ways from 19, right? But we can see how crazy things, how quickly things can happen in our world, can't we? So, we see that that's taking place. Now, what he's laying out for us in verse 7, He shall drink by the brook, by the wayside, He shall, uh, therefore He shall lift up His head. What's he saying? When that judgment begins, when that judgment starts, He will only slow long enough to take a drink of water, He's not going to gorge himself. He's not going to park. He's not going to rest. The picture is poetic. Obviously, Jesus doesn't need water, but the poetic picture is he, he'll stop long enough. He'll stop long enough to get a drink, but he keeps going. He stopped long enough to, to give his water, water to his horse, but he keeps going. It's, nothing is going to stop the judgment. The word used in Revelation chapter 6 at the beginning of the final seven-year period of time is the word tachyon. It's... It's the idea from which we get the word tachometer, which is that thing in our cars that shows us how fast the engine's revving, right? 1,000, 2,000. If it gets up to 10,000, it's bad usually. Maybe 6,000. My motorcycle just purred perfect at about 10,000, but that's another point. But the point is, in Revelation 6, what, what is it saying? It's saying when these things start, it's going to rev up. And nothing is going to stop once Revelation 6 happens. It's going to go all the way through 19. It's going to flow all the way through. When that begins, when that starts, when that takes place, what, what is begun is going to be completed. There's no break in the middle. No break in the middle. The good news, we have chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, you see the church is with Christ. 
So that that is a little bit of good news. But ultimately, again, the hope is when the when the rescue shows up, we're doing what? Not throwing our armor down, not quitting, not giving up. We're saying, look, God said he's going to finish what he's begun with Messiah. God's going to accomplish it all. It will happen. It will happen. That's why it's so often quoted. The writer of Hebrews lays it out for us. Jesus laid it out for us. And Mark and Matthew, this is God's uh, end game. Laid out for us. Beginning of the idea laid out for us in Psalm 110. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.